Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is episode 25, It's Not Just Fido, Managing Pets During Disaster. In this episode, we'll be examining the issues surrounding the management of companion animals during disaster, including some of the tough lessons identified in prior disasters. What happened, what needs it to improve, and what can you do to prepare your pet for disaster? To this end, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kimberly Williams, who recently published a paper on the topic. We'll also discuss some useful planning and preparedness tools of the trade, which might just help to make sure that the furriest member of your family is taken care of. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. So Josh, do you have any pets? You know what? Sadly, I don't anymore, but I did grow up with uh, dogs in the house. So I definitely come from a very pet-friendly family. I had a bunny, and I I remember I was devastated when it died of old age. So I I just can't really imagine what it would be like to lose a pet to a disaster. Yeah, you're right. I think you raise a a really good point. Um, I think it's something that uh, emergency managers can use to our advantage is this, you know, strong sense of pet love that people have. And uh, just like, you know, fire safety messaging uh, that is given to kids is often actually aimed at adults uh, because the message gets taken home. I think this is something that we can use to our advantage if uh, we pick preparedness in terms of looking after your pet, I think we can get some broader uh, messaging out there. That's right. And this topic is, is far from being a new one, but there was recent cause to revisit it in a Canadian context during the 2016 Alberta wildfires. And I was lucky enough to have a chat with Dr. Kim Williams, who conducted some, some really impactful research on the topic. But before we do that, as always... So Josh, what do we have for acronym analysis today? Okay, so just a few for this episode. Uh, the f- first one is PETS, P-E-T-S, which refers to an actual legislation which exists only in the U.S., but it stands for Pets Evacuation and Transportation Standards Act. Now this is something that uh, um, is a requirement for states to be contingent on receiving federal FEMA disaster assistance. So they've got a little bit of teeth in their legislation for ensuring that pets are incorporated uh, at the state and local levels. That might actually be the best acronym I've ever heard. Uh, the, the next acronym is CDART, the Canadian Disaster Animal Rescue Team. And of course, the RCMP, uh, we've got more uh, in increasingly international listen- listeners. So that's f- uh, uh, for those uh, who don't know, RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Perfect. So not many acronyms today. So without any further ado, I give you Dr. Kim Williams uh, in an interview recorded April 18th, 2019. Hi, my name is Kim Williams. I am Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Mount Royal University. Mount Royal University is home to the Centre for Community Disaster Research, and I was invited to become an affiliate faculty member a few years ago after uh, the director and I went down to New Orleans. He, Tim Haney is his name, and he invited me to join him on his field school to New Orleans. Uh, He's done that a couple of times now. And the two disasters that he focused on during that class were the hurricane, Hurricane Katrina, and then also the Gulf oil spill. Uh, And so both those field schools were hugely influential for me in, in paying attention to the Fort McMurray fire in a way that was quite a bit different than I probably would have had I not gone on those field schools. So that's the gist. Awesome. So from New Orleans, to Fort McMurray. Yeah. We're here today to talk about the management of pets 
during disaster. And I understand you've done some research on this. And I'm, I'm wondering if we could start off just by exploring why this topic is important. So beyond the obvious, uh, mm -hmm. we're all very attached to our pets. They're part <clears throat> of the family. But why is the management of pets so important for disaster management? There are a few reasons. The whole conversation or one of the major parts of the conversation around emergency management is how do we get people back into their homes, back into their communities, back to their quote unquote normal lives as soon as humanly possible. And part of that equation has to be keeping the entire family together. And so in order to keep families together, you need to incorporate a consideration of companion animals as part of that family. So that's a huge piece of it. Um, and so as a consequence, then you backtrack from that and say, well, all right, how do we do this? Well, you need to have emergency management plan in place for pets, right? Like you need to know what you're going to do and how to house them, how to get them back to their families, how to keep families with their pets, um, all in the disaster management piece. So the end goal was resilience. And animals, companion animals, have to be incorporated into that. The second thing is that there's been so much research um, in the last, I would say, 20 years or so on the benefits of companion animals to psychological welfare, um, kind of going on the research that's coming out of psychology around service animals and uh, support dogs and support animals, and then combining it with the conversation in disaster management, which is about like resiliency, you know, let's get folks back to their normal lives as soon as possible, then it becomes really obvious that attending to companion animals in a conversation about disaster, especially if we're talking about mass evacuations, we have to incorporate what, what do we do with the animals? That makes a lot of sense. You know, resilience and mental wellness are two key priorities in, mm -hmm. in the recovery phase of disaster management. Now, you recently wrote a paper on this called Managing Pets During Disasters through that uh, Center for Community Disaster Research. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, what the need was, how mm -hmm. you performed the, the research, and what sort of questions you were trying to, to answer? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for that. So what I discovered in New Orleans we heard quite frequently that the New Orleans municipality and the towns around New Orleans and the counties and parishes in, in Louisiana didn't have any plan for pets. There were 50,000 forcibly abandoned pets in New Orleans. And part of that was people would present themselves to um, to the bus to get out of town. And then the bus would say, the people would say, no, you know, you can't bring your dog on the bus or you can't bring your cat on the bus. And so people would then choose to go back to their homes because if you can't bring your animals with you, um, you're not going to evacuate, which is another reason why dealing with animals in some way that people, that, that folks who may potentially need to evacuate during a disaster, they need to know that the municipality has a plan so that if they have to forcibly abandon their pets, they will know that somebody somewhere will go and get that animal and, and handle it until they can be reunited. Um, because otherwise it puts civilians at risk because they're going to stay in their homes and it also, or try to get back in, which is a little bit of what happened in Fort McMurray. And it also then puts the first responders at risk because they're the ones then who are responsible for civilians in a disaster zone. 
So when I was sitting in my backyard um, working on, a, on another project, I was literally writing on my computer in my backyard here in Calgary while I was like listening to the news and hearing um, the, the Fort McMurray wildfire unfold. Um, and I think many of us had that experience where we were sort of sitting in southern Alberta going, oh, my goodness, the north is on fire. And so I thought... Uh, and then I immediately started seeing all of the folks who were posting on Facebook and Twitter, I've left my dog, can somebody go get it? Here's my address, just break in. And so I'm part of those networks a little bit. So I kind of hear a lot of things that go on, you know, in terms of social media. And so all of that conversation was happening. And I immediately thought, oh, they don't have a plan. And Fort McMurray is not unusual in this, by the way, like just in case anybody's wondering, um, Fort Mac is pretty standard. There aren't many communities that have a plan for companion animals, despite all of the conversation and research and um, and even legislation. The United States actually has legislation that requires municipalities and states to have um, companion animal plans for disaster relief and emergency management. And so uh, so Fort McMurray, I'm, you know, didn't have a plan. and. What ended up happening is that I started thinking, well, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? And as the folks doing research at the Center for Community Disaster Research will tell you, um, this is not going to be the last time that this happens in Alberta or in Canada. You know, Alberta is kind of the the leader in Canadian uh, climate-related disasters at the moment, and it's likely to just continue. So we need plans. So I started doing the research in June of 2016, so about a month after the evacuation of Fort McMurray, and my research finished up in June of 2017. And the way that I went about doing my research was I just interviewed people. Um, I, I sent letters. I sent emails. I asked people when I was interviewing them, should I? do you know anybody else that I should talk to? So that's called snowball interviewing, right? Um, and I talked to everybody from folks who had to evacuate without their pets to folks that were able to evacuate with their pets. I talked to RCMP officers. I talked to uh, animal welfare people. I talked to folks who were housing animals that had been evacuated out of Fort McMurray. I, I talked to veterinarians, anybody who would talk to me. So that's how I did my research. And what's really lovely right now is Alberta kind of has this opportunity to become a world leader on how to handle companion animals during disaster. The problem of pets and disasters has been around for a while. And it sounds oh, yeah. like kind of the gaps was um, the lack of planning. Specifically to Fort McMurray, what did mm -hmm. your study discover in terms of the way that uh, pets were managed during that disaster? The first thing I always like to mention is that the first responders did nothing wrong. The issue is not with how they handled it. The issue is the fact that they that there's no plan. But essentially what ended up happening was they evacuated on May 1st, um, I'm sorry, May 3rd. And then by May 4th, they the RCMP started to realize that a lot of people didn't get back home to get their animals. So again, these are forcibly abandoned pets, right? So Fort McMurray um, is basically a one-way in, one-way out community, and all of the neighborhoods are like cul-de-sacs. And so the RCMP, when they declared the, uh, the mandatory evacuation, and the evacuations were declared sort of in stages, right? Certain neighborhoods went first kind of thing. And so each neighborhood got blocked off. And so folks were allowed out, but not in. 
And one of the big problems was that the emergency evacuation was called during the workday. So a lot of people were at school, a lot of people at work, and they weren't allowed back into their neighborhoods to get anything, toothbrushes, cell phone chargers, or dogs. And so physically, they had to leave without their animals. And so it it's not that they chose to, it's that many of them were forced to. So then because that happened, the RCMP began what's called a maintain in place policy. Dogs, cats, they just are maintained in place. So the RCMP ostensibly is going to go around, identify if there are animals in a home, and then what they are supposed to do and what ended up happening is that they'll go in and feed the animals and water the animals and make sure the animals are, are attended to. Um, and so what, how they started to do this was by putting via social media, particularly Facebook and Twitter, they created a, a document that was distributed for folks who had to evacuate without their animals to complete the form. Where do you live? What's your address? What what animals are we looking for? Where might we find them, especially in terms of cats, right? Because cats like mattresses and attics, you know? So, And so there was this document that got created. And then a couple of days later, um, that first document got duplicated with a second document. And so the duplicate documents that were created by two separate groups of folks kind of resulted in mass confusion among emergency responders. And as you might imagine, panic and frustration and anxiety among the humans who had to evacuate because they were like, which form do I fill out? Who are the people who are going to go get my animal? What is actually happening? And and the folks who had evacuated, they don't know about the maintain in place, right? That's a very like emergency management term. So they don't they didn't have any idea that that you know the RCMP was mindful of the fact that there had been animals left behind, that they were trying their best to go in and make sure that the animals were fed and watered. Um, so there was a lot of panic in sort of those first three, two or three days um, in in the acute aftermath of the evacuation when people were still trying to find places to stay. So those two forms happened for about three days, and then. Um, Somebody at some point decided, and and it's still unclear who that was and when that was, somebody at some point decided to set up a telephone hotline, um, which was uh, maintained by the RCMP. And then uh, the two, one of the forms, the original form got taken down. And so the official form on the RMWB website ended up being the form, capital T, capital F. One of the frustrating parts of this, though, um, is that that form that ended up being the official form that people could report they had left their pets in homes didn't actually ask what species the animal was. So one of the things that kept coming up in all of my interviews with the animal welfare people, so the experts in, in managing animals in all circumstances, not just disasters, is that had their expertise been relied upon, had their expertise been invited, there wouldn't have been the two forms. There wouldn't have been the lack of a question about what species is the animal that I'm looking for. Because obviously, if you don't know something's a dog, cat, or lizard, you don't know how to look for it or what to look for, um, or even what to feed it, which, uh, according to the animal welfare folks was really problematic because it also indicated that the first responders didn't have animal handling experience because any because obviously 
uh, how you approach a dog in a stressful situation for it is going to be really different than how you approach a cat in a stressful situation for it as the fire is raging and their people are gone um, and a stranger is in their home, right? So the the first responders didn't have that animal handling experience. And that was a major critique of this whole process by the animal welfare community here in Alberta. So then around May 6th, so this is three days after the evacuation. And keep in mind, you've got animals in homes. Have they been attended to? Have they food? Have they water? Nobody knows. So three days after the fire, after the evacuation, emergency and disaster management personnel finally realized that the maintain in place policy was not going to work. The the evacuation was just going to be much longer than they had originally thought. And so they contacted the folks in High River who had done the work during the floods to evacuate animals. So they contacted those folks and said, get your people together, please come up to Fort McMurray. Now, all of those people are volunteers, right? So it takes a while to mobilize. But they got up there within 12 hours. Um, And, of course, in the meantime, you know, all of this is happening. Um, There were all these rogue volunteers that were getting behind the fire line. And that, again, is really problematic because part of it was people were like, oh, my God, here's my address. Somebody go in and get my dog. And so a truck, somebody who had a truck would say, I'm driving to Fort McMurray right now um, and I'm going to get I'm going to get people's dogs who who had some, you know, send me your address and I'll go in and I'll get your dog or I'll get your cat or whatever. And so you've got all these people who were sneaking behind the fire line or trying to, which then diverts the attention of the first responders from actually trying to put out the fire <laughs> and attend to the pets. Um, it diverts their attention to trying to keep civilians safe who are trying to get behind the fire line. So that's not a good situation. By May 7th, They had Alberta Spay Neuter Task Force was up there. Uh, The Alberta Animal Rescue Crew Society was up there. And there was a peace officer, several peace officers from the Alberta SPCA. And so uh, starting on May 7th, they they had several teams of three people each peace officer to make sure they broke into the house properly, right, that they had permission to do that because that was a big problem in High River and the RCMP did not want any part of that anymore. Um, They had an animal handler so that they could, you know, get the animal properly. Um, And then they had a locksmith so they didn't have to break in. They could kind of just jimmy the lock. That lasted about three four days. Um, and towards the end of that, as can be imagined, um, it, rescue became recovery, right? Because some animals died of starvation, dehydration, or toxic smoke inhalation. Um, the, pots that, the, the pets that were rescued were triaged. They were housed on McDonald Island, which is just north of downtown Fort McMurray. Um, and then for full days after the human evacuation, they, they officially began the pet evacuations. And that was using any and all available modes of transportation. They used city buses, they used school buses, they used cattle cars. And there's a rumor, although unconfirmed, that at one point there was a flatbed truck used to get animals out of Fort McMurray. So yeah, so by May 8th, really early in the morning, the first load of dogs, cats, and exotics arrived in Edmonton. And while all that was happening in Fort Fort McMurray for four days, 
the um, Alberta Veterinary Medical Association was charged with setting up the emergency triage center in Edmonton. So they rented a warehouse. They got that all set up. Um, you know, and you can imagine what it is to outfit an empty warehouse. Well, find it and then outfit it with like basically a, a medical hospital for vet for veterinarians, right? Um, and they did that in 72 hours. So it was pretty pretty impressive. Um, but one of the things that that I found in talking to people was that it shouldn't have had to be that way. Like we should already know who's going to be in charge of it, where it's going to be, where the equipment's going to come from. Like all that should just be done, right? It should be ready so that when it happens again, we already know all these things. So that was kind of the timeline of things. You mentioned a lot of the complications that occurred from the, the, viability of the maintain in place policy mm-hmm. over time. I really liked uh, your point on spontaneous volunteers self-deploying because of, there was the perception that it wasn't being taken care of. And then you know, the common problems that we always see with disaster management is the interoperability piece, knowing where the expertise lies. And right. then, uh, it, it's, it's interesting to hear that um, pet handlers didn't know if they were going for a, a pet hamster or a pet velociraptor. So yeah. right. um, what about the the reunification and the, the rehoming of these pets in the aftermath. Yeah. Well, that was a huge problem too, because again, um, because the RCMP didn't know who the animal welfare experts are in our province, they didn't know that the Alberta Spay and Neuter Task Force literally does this work pretty much every other weekend <laughs> in their spay and neuter clinics. So, so we have in Alberta this amazing network of folks that know exactly how to intake pets, how to track them, and how to get them back to where they came from. And because the RCMP didn't either didn't know that this happens, that the that there are experts here, and or didn't value their expertise, and I suspect it is the and, then a lot of pets were misplaced, right? Because they didn't know how to track them. So there wasn't a central way of keeping track of where all the animals ended up. Um, and that was because, again, like the the sort of expertise, particularly of the Alberta Spay and Neuter Task Force, was not um, recognized. And so that would be part of any plan is that you have to um, go to the experts in your province, right, which in our case is the Alberta Spay and Neuter Task Force in combination with the Alberta Animal Rescue Crew Society, um, both of which are located in Calgary. So you have to re- recognize who your experts are, call upon them, re- remunerate them properly, by the way, for the expertise that they're that they're providing you, um, and then and and then you have the infrastructure, their forms, their procedures, their processes. You have that infrastructure already in place for the next time, right? So you don't have to scramble at the last minute. The other uh, the other piece of it that got really tricky was that there were so many exotics in Fort McMurray. And nobody had any idea that there were that many exotics. And so when the triage center in Edmonton started getting like snake or, or was was informed um, by the folks on, on McDonald Island that there were a lot of exotics that they were going to be sending down to Edmonton, the folks in Edmonton were like, oh, my gosh, we don't have we need to get fish tanks. We need to get, um, you know, because I don't I, I'm not familiar with exotics, but like they require a special climate 
controls like heat and light and 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 special food and special environment right so what do you do with all of that and how do you get it organized like literally on a moment's notice um and so it's estimated that about 40,000 companion animals of all species lived in Fort McMurray at the time of the fire. But that's just an estimate based on what we think we know about Canadian pet ownership nationally. And we had no idea that there were so many exotics up there. So that was a big problem for sure. And then the other thing that you were asking about, too that I feel like I should mention was that one of the critiques that a lot of folks I talked to made was that the reunification process was not only disorganized, um, like people weren't able to find their pets as quickly as they wanted to, but the rehoming of quote-unquote abandoned pets was premature. So what ended up happening was that the Alberta um, SPCA set a date of, I'm fairly certain it was June 30th, um, for all pets that were Fort McMurray evacuated pets to be reclaimed before they would be put up for adoption on like Humane Society website, right? Or the Edmonton Animal Care and Control Center website. So you got to figure folks were evacuated May 3rd. They had until June 30th to claim their pet. But there was disorganization in finding where their pet had gone. Also, there was a huge shortage in pet-friendly emergency housing. So like folks were in Edmonton who had been evacuated to Edmonton, for example, um, were having a real hard time finding hotels that would let them have their pets with them or even finding, you know, just a temporary apartment that would let them have pets. So they were begging people, please, can I just leave my dog at the Humane Society just for a few more weeks until I sort this out? So, um, so folks were feeling like that June 30th deadline was really hard to meet, especially in in terms of so many people having gone back to the Maritimes, right? So if you get evacuated and you end up in Edmonton, well, where are you going to go? You might as well go home for a few weeks until you can get back into your house in Edmonton, uh, in Fort Mac, right? Or until you in, in your apartment in Fort McMurray. So people who had had left their pets in Fort McMurray, but then ended up in like Prince Edward Island or like Nova Scotia, they weren't even back by June 30th. So there was a huge sort of controversy around that fairly arbitrary date that the SPCA set. And why they did that was because they're already overburdened, right? Like if, I mean, this is a conversation that happens all the time that they have too many animals in shelters throughout Alberta that they couldn't, they, and so as a consequence of, of that already being overburdened and under-resourced, how are they supposed to basically operate as a daycare uh, for for all these forcibly abandoned pets that ended up in their care because of the emergency? So like from their perspective, it made sense, but from the perspective of, of evacuees who really wanted to be reunited with their pets but simply couldn't, that June 30th date was a real problem for a lot of people. So what needs to change? Uh, yeah. What, what are some of your recommendations, maybe for the municipality or the mm-hmm. agency having jurisdiction and all the way down to the pet owners? What can what can be done to have this go a little smoother in the future? Yeah. And, and you hit the nail right on the head with that question, because it's really this multi-layered um, question, right? It's, it needs to be a multi-layered response. So one of the things that I have already mentioned is that um, we really need to shift the notion of, of emergency and disaster management planning and implementation so that family pets are a permanent feature of this process. 
Part of that, though, for the province and the municipalities would be that you need to recognize who your experts are. Don't reinvent the wheel. We already have the folks here. We're really lucky. Alberta has an, an enormous and amazing community of folks who are doing animal welfare work, and they know what they're doing. And many of them are also trained in how to do that work in disasters. So take advantage of, the, of that expertise. Identify the people in your community. And if it's the provincial level, identify the organizations that are operating in different parts of the province, right? Um, and then the other thing I also suggest for sort of provinces and municipalities is that they should become familiar with the work of this organization called CDART, which is the Canadian Disaster Animal Rescue Team. And they're operating out of British Columbia and they do a lot of training. So a lot of the folks here in Alberta that know how to manage animals in disasters have taken that training. And why not have first responders in, in Alberta, RCMP folks, um, animal uh, officers and control officers take that course, right, so that they know how to handle the, uh, animals in disasters. Um, and then the other thing in terms of provincial and municipal is just that there really needs to just be more communication between government agencies and the public. So not only during the disaster, but also before, right? So that the, the public knows that, yes, we have a plan. Yes, this is how your animal will be handled if you cannot take it with you. Um, and that's not that hard to do, right? You just have to create communication. But I'll, I'll kind of move to the animal welfare organizations now um, because I talk to a lot of animal welfare folks. And one of the things that kept coming up was their frustration with the fact that the RCMP didn't recognize their expertise. So one of the things that I suggest to them, the animal welfare organizations, is their paid staff and their volunteers need to be prepared to function as first responders. So just like the first responders maybe should take CDART training, I suggest that the animal welfare organizations, their staff and volunteers, maybe need to take incident command system training to, to learn how to be a first responder. And then I also suggest that they look professional to the professionals. One of the problems was that they're mostly volunteer groups. And so, you know, they're just wearing their jeans and T-shirts. And maybe their T-shirts had the logo of the organization on it, and maybe it didn't. So how do you look like a first responder? How do you look professional to the professionals? Maybe... Um, highly visible uniforms that include the organization's logo and, you know, big animal welfare, like written across the back or something, right? Because in order to be treated as a professional, you have to look like a professional. And we can critique all day long whether that's fantastic or not, but the fact is, is it's kind of true. Um, and especially to first responders who are highly trained, highly skilled, highly professional. Um, and so how to play their game and how to look like you know how to play their game and how to actually know how to play their game. And all these are different levels. So I think that's important for the animal welfare organizations. So we've covered some of the things that the municipality can do and some of the things that these animal welfare organizations can do. I'm wondering, what are your kind of top three tips for pet owners, or as you put it, the pet guardians? Yeah, thank you for that. So the first is have a 72-hour emergency and disaster plan ready to go. Have one for your people and have one for your pets. Um, and if you want to know what to put in such a disaster kit, the Calgary Emergency Management Agency has a really great list on their website for what should go in an emergency 
kit and what should go in a pet emergency kit. The second thing that I recommend is familiarizing yourself with your municipality's emergency disaster management plan, both for humans, right? So how will how does your municipality deal with disasters when they strike? How do they deal with human evacuations if that becomes necessary? How do they deal with pet evacuations if that becomes necessary? Check your town's website, your city's website. They should have a little section on there. If they don't, call all your people, like call your representatives, call your city council, call the mayor and find out why they don't. And then try to figure out how to make one because it's a really important thing for municipalities to have. And then the third thing is, and this is really important, don't stay in or re-enter a disaster area. So if you've been asked to evacuate, if you if the evacuation is mandatory, get out and don't go back in. And you won't need to go back in or you won't need to stay if you're prepared with the two things I just mentioned above, right? So if you have knowledge about what your town's plan is and you've got your 72-hour emergency kit for humans and pets, then you won't need to stay and you won't have to go back in because you've already prepared. So that preparation piece is really important. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this epic interview ah, on thank pet you. welfare. <laughs> I, I really appreciate all the work you've done, uh, not just for this episode, but for preparedness in Alberta. Oh, cheers. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. Great interview, Grayson. Uh, I think that was just a fantastic conversation. And, you know, for me, the big takeaway here is it should be uh, automatic word association. When you hear pets as an emergency manager, you need to think evacuation failure. Pets, evacuation failure, pets, evacuation failure. It's so core to our uh, main mission of looking after uh, people that I think uh, it's just really important to to know how, how much impact you can have by making sure people's animals are well cared for and ensuring that people actually do what we want uh, uh, during times of crisis. That's right. And the more I kind of looked into it, the, the further and further reaching the impacts of separating people from their loved ones whether it be furry or otherwise, are just it's it's so it's just so impactful. It, you know, it, it has that impact on response with the evacuation failure and the sort of rogue volunteers that we were talking about. Uh, it has an impact on recovery, and in fact, it's being uh, studied as a public health impact. And people, when separated from their pets, have a, a much higher rate of psychological illness as well as physical illness. And of course, on the pet side, they have a much higher rate of illness as well. So from a public health perspective, evacuating people and their pets together is crucial. And, you know, from a public policy standpoint, I think when we wear our advocacy hat, it's something maybe to consider uh, when you're advocating for uh, regulations and, and policymaking. Um, I think we might have something to learn from this PETS uh, legislation in, in the U.S. that actually uh, makes it mandatory to include pet emergency planning quite high up on the on the priority list. Um, Can you so, tell us a little bit about about that pets act? Yes. Yeah, so this was a, one of the rare bipartisan legislation that actually got very broad uh, support. I think there's only two people, uh, um, lawmakers, that uh, had concerns with it when the when the law was passed. But it came out of Katrina and essentially. Um, uh, a bit of a lesson from really media focus as well. There was a dog named Snowball that was uh, one of the most iconic images uh, from the Katrina disaster. And there's something you can kind of count on when the media is covering disasters. You know, if there's a helicopter anywhere within, you know, a few uh, hundred kilometers, it will be
be uh, on the news. If there's people canoeing in a few inches of water, that will be on the news and pets because animals uh, make, you know, for very impactful uh, images. So anyways, this actually led to um, uh, a whole change in, in how uh, state level uh, disaster management uh, is done. And it uh, has teeth behind it because if you don't comply with the requirements, uh, and th that includes planning for shelters, planning for reception centers, planning for animals in distress and how you're going to treat them, um, you actually don't get all of your eligible federal um, FEMA dollars. I know we don't have that uh, sort of requirement through legislation here, but it does seem like there's a kind of a moral and ethical responsibility for the municipalities to, to plan, especially when it's a forced abandonment because of the evacuation order. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the, the impacts are, are far reaching. And as we're going to find out in a moment uh, with our journal club, there's some really good evidence uh, that, that points to this is something that we need to pay attention to. All right. So what is our journal club article for today? Yeah, so this is a great review article. Uh, it, it comes from the journal Animals, which is an open source journal, and it's entitled Challenges of Managing Animals and Disaster in the U.S. And this is an article by Heath and Linnabry, and they basically do a great job of reviewing all of the available uh, uh data and, and papers and literature that's out there about best practices for animal disaster response. And they really focus on um, the connection between people and their pets. And the one little line I want to read from the intro, which, I mean, this is uh, preaching to the choir, I know, and we've mentioned this a lot in many episodes, but I just love the way they, they say it so eloquently. Uh, so, quote, disasters rarely create new situations. In most cases, disasters simply expose underlying systemic vulnerabilities in a community by suddenly opposing chronically unmet needs with equally chronic insufficient resources and they kind of use pet ownership as a window for uh, going through the social vulnerability theory of disaster so um, great reading uh, but some of the interesting findings is that they uh, uh, through some retrospective reviews um, uh, as kind of really great triangulation of methods with their with their paper but they found that Pet ownership is the single most common factor associated with human evacuation failure that can be positively affected when the threat of disaster is imminent. And that's based on multiple studies of actual evacuations. The number is 20 to 30% of all human evacuation failures can be attributed to pet ownership. So this is a huge pearl. This is something that, I mean, this should be reflected in emergency plans. This is, uh, you know, a number I think you should actually have at the tip of your tongue when you're thinking about pet um, evacuations and when you're trying to justify pet planning it's not just a secondary let's do it if we have the time and let's focus on people first you are focusing on people first by by looking at uh, pet evacuations so 20 to 30 percent that's a really good way of, of framing it you're focusing on people by focusing on those that they they love as well and you know it's not just evacuations that are impacted but responders as well uh, especially in, in the healthcare realm, one of the, uh, in fact, the second largest reason that healthcare professionals chose as a reason that they would not respond during an emergency is pet care, right behind care of their family. Yeah. So going through the paper quickly, they basically break it down into the different, um, you know, pillars of uh, emergency management from, uh, you know, mitigation, preparedness, response, etc. And they talk about the individual um, things that have worked and that have not worked in different jurisdictions and different uh, disasters. But some of the interesting data, which I found, I think is really usable right away, is understanding the characteristics of who in your community is going to be most vulnerable to evacuation failure. So there's a few different risk factors. So one of them is how households without children. And maybe this makes intuitive sense if you think about it, but households without children are uh, were several times more likely to 
um, have evacuation failure and to not heed uh, emergency action messaging and, and things like that um, because of pets or a perceived um, uh, inability to to leave with their pets. So uh, that's something to consider. Uh, the other um, interesting thing is they talk about actual interventions, things that work and things that didn't work. And one of them is to include with your door-to-door evacuation teams, having them actually um, have immediately available leashes and cardboard carriers for small animals. So you can immediately, if you're, if you're, you know, call to action is this is an imminent evacuation. We need you to, to, to leave the area immediately. And um, that's one less impediment. One less thing to worry about is you can um, just have a leash that you can immediately give um, uh, uh, to families as well as uh, something to help them move their, their smaller pets. Um, the other thing is talking about animal rescue. So uh, when we think about the response phase, uh, you know, how do you actually rescue an animal and, and how are you going to triage that as well as caring for animals in distress? So speaking of animals in distress and their and their subsequent management, there are two organizations that we'd like to briefly plug and uh, include them in our tool of the trade. So the first is CDART, which is the Canadian Disaster Animal Response Team. Uh, and then there's a, a similar organization in Nova Scotia called the Disaster Animal Response Team of Nova Scotia. And that team came up with what I really like uh, uh, for a tool of the trade is a really simple, straightforward top five tips for animal disaster preparedness. So tip number one, is identify evacuation locations that are pet friendly. Not every reception center is pet friendly. Not every location is pet friendly. Having a nice little list of hotels that you might be able to go to is important. Uh, Step number two, microchip your pets. Use that technology so that you can keep track of them and uh, provide some of those updates to responders if you do have to leave them behind. Uh, Step number three, start a buddy system. Redundancy is never a bad thing. Step four, assemble your disaster kit. And there's some great tools out there for 24-hour, 72-hour, and even 26-day disaster kits that might be applicable for your pet and ways that you can help this sort of maintain in place if that's the way it needs to go. And then finally, this one was, was interesting and really easy and something you should probably do right away at the end of this podcast if you haven't done it already, uh, take a photo of you with your pets so that you can show uh, whoever it is that needs the information what your pet looks like. Great advice. And certainly there's lots of groups in each province across Canada that you can go to. The obvious one being the uh, SPCA. Ontario SPCA has some great resources for emergency managers. Um, Another one, uh, a link through the Disaster Animal Response Team of Nova Scotia. Uh, There's a group called Red Rover and their website redrover.org has a a really comprehensive resource library that's got checklists, forms that you can freely download and modify and and use for reception center use um, and kind of just-in-time training for how to set up these animal friendly areas so a uh, great resource at Red Rover um, and encourage you to uh, to find out what the local expertise is in, in your province so just before we go I'd like to take a moment to mention the Alberta Podcast Network which Epic Podcast is a part of uh, the Alberta Podcast Network is this community of, of creative collaborative local podcasts and podcasters which helps to support the, the wonderful world of podcasts. You should absolutely check them out at albertapodcastnetwork.com and I'm sure there's a podcast there for you. 
And we should also mention that this episode is sponsored in part by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays local, plus Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. So you can learn more at parkpower.ca. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. Uh, Big thanks to Dr. Kim Williams for sharing her time and expertise with us on the topic of managing pets in disaster. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe or leave a review. And to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca. Send us a tweet at username epic underscore underscore podcast or visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.